Welcome to Everyday Monks, the podcast of St. Benedict's Anglican Church in Rockwall, Texas. This is the Reverend Michael Dean Vinson, and I'm glad you stopped by. Now, on episode one, we trace the origin of Lent back into the people of Israel to the Exodus event and its subsequent liturgies when the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt. In particular, Passover, and then of course the seasonal feast and also Sabbath observance. And then, having pulled the fulfillment of Passover into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, we arrived at Easter. So, Lent begins to develop from preparations and rituals associated with the Christian baptism connected to preparing people for baptism on Easter or the Paschal Feast. So, in this episode, we're going to pull the origin of Lent further into history. We're going to continue our story now into the time of Jesus in the apostolic era, and we're going to show how Lenten spirituality takes shape over the first three centuries of the church. We begin in the first century. Now, fasting played an important role in the self-understanding of the early Christian community. In fact, fasting is mentioned and discussed more frequently in the early decades after the first apostles than in the New Testament itself. It's very prevalent. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus, he assumed that his followers were going to observe fasts. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 6, Jesus says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. But verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now this association of baptism and fasting has its seeds, of course, in the New Testament. It also has its connection back to the Old Testament. In fact, Elijah, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, flees to the wilderness and he goes there and he fasts for 40 days where he hears the quiet whisper of the Lord. Chapter 19, verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and I listen to this, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights in Oreb, the mount of God. Now, the connection between baptism and uh, fasting is not overt here, of course, in this text with Elijah, but there are some echoes and imagery there of a death and then a rising to new life uh, and then fasting. I mean, in a sense, he's dying a slow death. He asks that he might die. He's fearful. He's fled. He's experiencing a type of death. And now he says to the Lord, take away my life. 
Then we hear and see the language of him laying down and sleeping as if falling asleep in the Lord. And then the angel comes, divine intervention, and touches him and says to him, arise and eat. Of course, arise, baptismal imagery of coming out of the font to new life. And then, of course, eating and partaking of that holy communion that's strengthening from the bread of heaven. So he's, in a sense, brought from death to life in this episode. And then he is led into the wilderness to fast. Of course, Jesus uh, is baptized, and that precedes his fasting in the wilderness. As we read in the Gospels that he was baptized, and then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Saul, the Apostle Paul, fasting follows his conversion experience and prior to his baptism. We see this in Acts chapter 9, where it says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So three days of fasting, and then Paul is baptized by Ananias. Now, baptism in the New Testament was generally seen as an act of repentance. And repentance often had fasting associations implied through Jewish practice. Additionally, we see the community of those already baptized fasting with baptismal candidates as in an act of solidarity for the special occasion. So it's all linked by repentance. Baptism and fasting are linked by repentance. They're inherently linked by the idea of repentance and entering into new life, like the flowers of spring emerging from a long, dreary winter. Fasting as a part of baptismal preparation, of course, pulling from the biblical tradition, is an early Christian practice inherited from the apostles like Paul. As we saw earlier, he fasted three days before his own baptism. And in an early document called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve, which is possibly written as early as 50 AD, we find the following instruction given to the churches regarding fasting and baptism. Okay, 50 AD, the teaching of the apostles being passed on to the churches. Chapter 7, entitled Concerning Baptism, Fasting, and Prayer, discusses the Christian rite of baptism, its form, its content, the invoking of the triune name, how the church is to prioritize the mode or the form of how one is baptized, and of greater importance to what we're talking about today, the association between fasting and Christian baptism. So I want you to listen to Didache chapter 7, where it says, Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there you have Trinitarian baptism. In running water. Now listen to this. If you do not have running water, then use whatever is available. And if you cannot do it in cold water, use warm. But if you have neither, pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, there you go. We just solved the controversy of modes of baptism, but that's another podcast. Now, continuing. And prior to baptism, both he who is baptizing and he who is being baptized should fast. Now, listen to this. Along with any others who can, and be sure that the one who is to be baptized fasts for one or two days beforehand. 
So right there, very early church document and instruction given from the apostles to the churches that not only is the baptismal candidate to fast, but the one baptizing and the whole parish is to fast with them. So here in the Didache, we find the idea of fasting prior to Easter baptism. So again, baptism connected with Easter and fasting connected with those preparing to be baptized at Easter. But we also begin to see as early again as 50 AD, possibly within the same document, the Didache, the tradition of Christians being instructed to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Because Wednesdays and Fridays are especially regarded as traditional markings of Christ's betrayal and death. Wednesday, the day he's betrayed, and of course Friday, becoming more binding over time as it's associated with Good Friday. And so these weekly, daily fasts, Wednesdays and Fridays, throughout the Christian year, were called station fasts. So going back to the Didache in chapter 7, listen to what they instruct the Christians to do. But do not let your fast fall on the same days as the hypocrites. The hypocrites, of course, being a reference to Jesus' teaching again in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, also referring to the Jews, who, continuing in the Didache, fast on Monday and Thursday. Rather, you, Christians, should fast on Wednesday and Friday. And so here, very, very early, again, we see the codification of fasting and practices as instructed by the teaching of the apostles given to the early church. So this practice of fasting prior to baptism in the Didache is going to blossom into the fuller Easter preparations. And it's ultimately going to develop into our Lenten fast or the fasting that we partake of during the 40 days of Lent, in particular on behalf of those preparing to be baptized or confirmed as we do presently in our Anglican tradition. And now to bring this even further into our present practice, piety, and worship as Anglicans, and in particular in the 1928 prayer book tradition, uh, if you go uh, in the front part of your 1928 prayer book and you find tables and rules for fasts, you will read the following. The table of fasts are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And then it says, other days of fasting on which the church requires such a measure of abstinence as is more especially suited to extraordinary acts and exercises of devotion. Number one, the 40 days of Lent. Okay, there's the connection right there to what we've been developing. Number two, the ember days at the four seasons being the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after the first Sunday in Lent. The Feast of Pentecost, September 14th and December 13th. Notice how the days that are set apart for ember day fasting are Wednesday, betrayal, Friday, death, and Saturday in the grave. Okay, so don't lose that, that passion motif even in those ember days. And then all the Fridays in the year, except Christmas Day and the Epiphany, or any Friday which may intervene between these feasts. So again, we're drawing the connection between the earliest practices of the church as given from the teachings of Christ and then passed on through the apostles, pulled forward through the Anglican tradition into the spirituality of the prayer book. The earliest Christians also began to fast before receiving Holy Communion or Eucharist on Sundays. And so fasting on Friday uh, and obviously Wednesdays and Fridays and prior to receiving Holy Communion on Sundays, this was the typical Christian week 
it was normal practice in the earliest Christian church. Christians associating holiness or being a clean vessel to receive the heavenly food of Christ's body and blood would fast then before receiving communion on Sunday. And so if you put this all together, we see that each week is really observed as a mini passion, as it is today. So Wednesday, betrayal, Friday, crucifixion, and then each Sunday, resurrection, or we could say it's a little Easter. And so every week of the Christian year with its station fasts is a rehearsal of the great Paschal feast that is celebrated at Easter. So to summarize, within 30 years of Christ's resurrection and ascension, we have documents, the Didache, uh, instructing Christians to keep weekly fasts, Wednesdays and Fridays, agreeing with early New Testament gospel and the epistles. And then we have instructions to fast before receiving Holy Communion each Sunday and to fast prior to baptisms. So baptisms aren't necessarily occurring at particular appointed times of the year, but most likely happening as Gentiles and Jews are converting to Christianity. I mean, the imminent return of Christ was real and they were expecting Christ to return. And so when someone was converting to Christianity, they would be baptized. And in addition, uh, many, many were being martyred before they could even be baptized. So we see these practices continue throughout the first and the second centuries, and there's slight variations found in different locations throughout the Christian churches, but basically are all adhering to the same basic pattern and observances. So let's move a little bit further into the second century. Now, we have to address something that was a true issue in the early church, that the date of Easter was varying, and the length of the fast associated was varying as well. So as the church progresses throughout the known world, observances begin to vary according to local customs and inherited apostolic traditions. Churches in certain parts of the world are observing Easter on the Jewish Passover. And then others began to observe it on the Sunday or the Lord's Day after the 4th of Nisan. So as early as 120 AD, St. Irenaeus writes of the great diversity throughout the churches in regards to Easter observance and fasting practices. And he argues for observing Easter on Sunday instead of weekdays, which if you followed the Jewish calendar, Easter could fall on any given day. And then he makes other arguments to the churches of Gaul to try and persuade them. The point being is that as early as 120 AD, we see local customs emerging within the one holy Catholic in apostolic church around Easter observance and fasts. Now, Melito of Sardis and his On Pascha, probably written around 160 AD, was an advocate for allowing Easter to continue being celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, which was the tradition of St. John, the apostle who was the bishop of Ephesus, and it was the custom predominantly practiced by the Eastern and Asiatic churches. Now, St. John was what became to be called a quattrodeciman. So, quattrodeciman from the Latin quarta decima, meaning 14th, you know, the 14th of Nisan. 
And this was the name given to the practice of celebrating the death of Christ on the Passover day of the 14th of the Nisan, according to the biblical dating of the Jewish calendar. And again, on whatever day of the week that it occurred. Now, returning to Melito of Sardis, listen to what he has to say to those who observe Easter in accordance with the Jewish calendar, in particular the Quattrodecimans. Listen to what he says, though, about fasting in preparation for celebrating Easter, which is our present focus. He writes, Given that the Jewish tradition had been to keep a fast before the Passover, it is only natural that the Quattrodecimans should continue this tradition. Jews fasted from the time of the evening sacrifice and the probability is that this was the original Quattrodesman practice. You see, so as the two religions parted, the original justification was forgotten. And three reasons are variously given for fasting practice. To share in the sufferings of the Lord, to fast on behalf of the Jews during their feasting, and to prepare oneself to receive communion at the Paschal Feast. All of these are probably secondary, and need not be mutually exclusive. So Melito contrasts the sufferings of the Lord with the celebration of the Jews. And this is certainly an indication that he is fasting at the time the Jews were keeping their celebration. Now, Eusebius, the Christian historian, writes of the Easter controversy happening in 190 AD. He says that the diocese of all Asia, according to an ancient tradition, held that the 14th day of the moon, that would be of Nisan, on which day the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should always be observed as the feast of the life-giving Pasch, contending that the fast ought to end on that day, whatever day of the week it might happen to be. However, it was not the custom of the churches in the rest of the world to end at this point, as they observed the practice which from apostolic tradition has prevailed to the present time of terminating the fast on no other day than on that of the resurrection of our Savior. For the controversy is not only about the day, he's speaking again, the controversy between when Easter shall be observed, but also concerning the very form of the fast. For there are those who would hold that one should fast a single day, others two and others more. Some count the day as 40 continuous hours of day and night. And the great variety of observance did not come about in our day, but came from much earlier from those who went before us, who held closely to their customary ways, perhaps in their simplicity. And so things have been done until our time. But nonetheless, all of these were at peace, and we likewise live in peace with one another. Indeed, the distinction in fasting emphasizes the harmony of our faith. Now, around 195, Pope Victor I actually attempted to excommunicate the Quattrodecimans and turning this divergence of practice that Eusebius just mentioned into a full-blown ecclesiastical controversy. According to Eusebius, synods were convened and letters, of course, were exchanged. But in the end, having overstepped his mark, Victor, the Bishop of Rome, was rebuked and then he had to back down. So let's move a little bit further into history and go into the third century. Now, there is a document called the Apostolic Tradition, which was written by a presbyter named Hippolytus around the year 215 AD. And this is a very important third century document because within it, it describes early church life and order. 
or basically how the church was supposed to do things. So Hippolytus served as a presbyter in Rome in the early 200s, and he fought ardently against the Sibylian heresies in particular, which is modalism, and other Christological heresies as well. And he composed this apostolic tradition. And he did so to codify all the historic traditions and practices of the Christian church in the face of these innovators who were looking to change the ancient way of worship and Christian practice. Innovation, by the way, isn't a new thing. It's been around forever. And so what we find in this document are the first and second century practices of the church written and given to the church coming from the apostles and through historic tradition and codified by Hippolytus. And in that, of course, we find fasting before baptism and keeping the paschal fast in accordance with the apostles' teaching. Hippolytus writes this on fasting before baptism. Those who are to receive baptism shall fast on the preparation of the Sabbath, or Friday. On the Sabbath, those who are to receive baptism shall all gather together in one place chosen according to the will of the bishop, and they shall be commanded to pray and kneel. And then he writes this on the pre-Paschal or the pre-Easter celebration fast. He says, no one must eat anything on the Pascha before the oblation has been made. For with one who acts thus, it will not be counted as a fast. If a woman is pregnant or if someone is sick and cannot fast for two days, let them fast on Saturday, taking bread and water if necessary, or basically two days before Easter instead of three. So at the end of the third century, Easter is being observed on different dates, some continuing to observe on the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish Passover, and other churches are doing so on the Lord's Day, the first Sunday following the 14th of Nisan, which is and became the custom in the Western Church. The date of Easter observance, again, it's varying, but the most universal and binding fast over all of this and through all the churches was the Paschal fast on the Friday and Saturday before Easter. Now, others were observing additional fast days leading up to the Paschal Feast. We'll get to that. But universally, the church is observing the pre-Paschal fast beginning on Friday. In fact, parts of the church, as uh, I just mentioned, were fasting for four, six, and eight weeks in preparation for Easter at this time. So not just beginning on the Friday before Easter, but some churches were beginning a fast prior to uh, Easter, some eight weeks before. Now, if you are an Anglican in the 1928 prayer book tradition, you have been through what we call the Jessima Sundays, the three Sundays that precede Lent or Ash Wednesday. Now, these Jessima Sundays then are a remnant of a history in the church of these extended fasts within various parts of the church. So, the Jessima Sundays would have been an additional fast to the 40 days of Lent. And so you can see how the days, 70 days before Easter, becomes a transition point between the liturgical seasons before we head into Ash Wednesday and Lent. So this lengthening of the fast was in part attributed to preparing converts for holy baptism, 
So not only were churches observing lengthened fasts, some up to eight weeks prior to Easter at this time, but they were also preparing those to be baptized. And so they took advantage of these four or six or eight week extended fasts as a means of also enrolling the catechumenate uh, under the bishop and then preparing them to receive baptism at the Easter vigil uh, on that glorious day when they would don the white robes and be taken down into the waters and would arise to new life in Christ. On our next episode, we'll begin with Constantine's conversion to Christ and what and how this worldwide paradigm shift in Christianity shapes the Lenten practices and spirituality that we've received today. We hope to see you next time on Everyday